The times rush past, and so do the caravans, thought the alchemist, as he watched the hundreds of people and animals arriving at the oasis. People were shouting at the new arrivals, dust obscured the desert sun, and the children of the oasis were bursting with excitement at the arrival of the strangers. The alchemist saw the tribal chiefs greet the leader of the caravan and converse with him at length. But none of that mattered to the alchemist. He'd already seen many people come and go, and the desert remained as it was. He'd seen kings and beggars walking the desert sands. The dunes were changed constantly by the wind, yet these were the same sands he had known since he was a child. He always enjoyed seeing the happiness that the travellers experienced when, after weeks of yellow sand and blue sky, they first saw the green of the date palms. Maybe God created the desert so that man could appreciate the date trees, he thought. He decided to concentrate on more practical matters. He knew that in the caravan there was a man to whom he was to teach some of his secrets. The omens had told him so. He didn't know the man yet, but his practised eye would recognise him when he appeared. He hoped that it would be someone as capable as his previous apprentice. I don't know why these things have to be transmitted by word of mouth, he thought. It wasn't exactly that they were secrets. God revealed his secrets easily to all his creatures. He had only one explanation for this fact. Things have to be transmitted this way, because they were made up from the pure life, and this kind of life cannot be captured in pictures or words. Because people become fascinated with pictures and words and wind up forgetting the language of the world. The boy couldn't believe what he was seeing. The oasis, rather than being just a well surrounded by a few palm trees, as he had seen once in a geography book, was much larger than many towns back in Spain. There were 300 wells, 50,000 date trees and innumerable coloured tents spread among them. It looks like a thousand and one nights, said the Englishman, impatient to meet with the alchemist. They were surrounded by children, curious to look at the animals and people that were arriving. The men of the oasis wanted to know if they had seen any fighting, and the women competed with one another for access to the cloth and precious stones brought by the merchants. The silence of the desert was a distant dream. The travellers in the caravan were talking incessantly, laughing and shouting as if they had emerged from the spiritual world and found themselves once again in the world of people. They were relieved and happy. They had been taking careful precautions in the desert, but the camel driver explained to the boy that oases were always considered to be neutral territories because the majority of the inhabitants were women and children. There were oases throughout the desert, but the tribesmen fought in the desert, leaving the oases as places of refuge. With some difficulty, the leader of the caravan brought all his people together and gave them his instructions. The group was to remain there at the oasis until the conflict between the tribes was over. Since they were visitors, they would have to share living space with those who lived there and would be given the best accommodations. That was the law of hospitality. Then he asked that everyone, including his own sentinels, hand over their arms to the men appointed by the tribal chieftains. Those are the rules of war, the leader explained. The oases may not shelter armies or troops. To the boy's surprise, the Englishman took a chrome-plated revolver out of his bag 
and gave it to the men who were collecting the arms. Why a revolver? he asked. It helped me to trust in people, the Englishman answered. Meanwhile, the boy thought about his treasure. The closer he got to the realisation of his dream, the more difficult things became. It seemed as if what the old king had called beginner's luck was no longer functioning. In his pursuit of the dream, he was being constantly subjected to tests of his persistence and courage. So he could not be hasty nor impatient. If he pushed forward impulsively, he would fail to see the signs and omens left by God along his path. God placed them along my path. He had surprised himself with the thought. Until then, he had considered omens to be things of this world, like eating or sleeping, or like seeking love or finding a job. He'd never thought of them in terms of a language used by God to indicate what he should do. Don't be impatient, he repeated to himself. It's like the camel driver said, eat when it's time to eat and move along when it's time to move along. That first day, everyone slept from exhaustion, including the Englishman. The boy was assigned a place far from his friend in a tent with five other young men of about his age. They were people of the desert and clamoured to hear his stories about the great cities. The boy told them about his life as a shepherd and was about to tell them of his experiences at the crystal shop when the Englishman came into the tent. I've been looking for you all morning, he said, as he led the boy outside. I need you to help me to find out where the alchemist lives. First, they tried to find him on their own. An alchemist would probably live in a manner that was different from that of the rest of the people of the oasis, and it was likely that in his tent an oven was continuously burning. They searched everywhere and found that the oasis was much larger than they could have imagined. There were hundreds of tents. We've wasted almost the entire day, said the Englishman, sitting down with the boy near one of the wells. Maybe we'd better ask someone, the boy suggested. The Englishman didn't want to tell others about his reasons for being at the oasis and couldn't make up his mind, but finally he agreed that the boy who spoke better Arabic than he should do so. The boy approached a woman who had come to the well to fill a goatskin with water. Good afternoon, ma'am. I'm trying to find out where the alchemist lives here at the oasis. The woman said she'd never heard of such a person and hurried away. But before she fled, she advised the boy that he had better not try to converse with women who were dressed in black, because they were married women. He should respect tradition. The Englishman was disappointed. It seemed he had made the long journey for nothing. The boy was also saddened. His friend was in pursuit of his personal legend, and when someone was in such a pursuit, the entire universe made an effort to help him succeed. That's what the old king had said. He couldn't have been wrong. I had never heard of alchemists before, the boy said. Maybe no one here has either. The Englishman's eyes lit up. That's it! Maybe no one here knows what an alchemist is. Find out who it is who cures the people's illnesses. Several women dressed in black came to the well for water, but the boy would speak to none of them, despite the Englishman's insistence. Then a man approached. Do you know someone here who cures people's illnesses? the boy asked. Allah cures our illnesses, said the man, clearly frightened of strangers. You're looking for witch doctors. 
He spoke some verses from the Quran and moved on. Another man appeared. He was older and was carrying a small bucket. The boy repeated his question. Why do you want to find that sort of person? the Arab asked. Because my friend here has travelled for many months in order to meet with him, the boy said. If such a man is here at the oasis, he must be a very powerful one, said the old man after thinking for a few moments. Not even the tribal chieftains are able to see him when they want to, only when he consents. Wait for the end of the war, then leave with the caravan. Don't try to enter into the life of the oasis, he said, and walked away. But the Englishman was exultant. They were on the right track. Finally, a young woman approached who was not dressed in black. She had a vessel on her shoulder, and her head was covered by a veil, but her face was uncovered. The boy approached her to ask about the alchemist. At that moment, it seemed to him that time stood still, and the soul of the world surged within him. When he looked into her dark eyes and saw that her lips were poised between a laugh and silence, he learned the most important part of the language that all the world spoke, the language that everyone on earth was capable of understanding in their heart. It was love, something older than humanity, more ancient than the desert, something that exerted the same force whenever two pairs of eyes met as had theirs here at the well. She smiled, and that was certainly an omen, the omen he had been awaiting without even knowing he was for all his life, the omen he had sought to find with his sheep and in his books, in the crystals and in the silence of the desert. It was the pure language of the world. It required no explanation, just as the universe needs none as it travels through endless time. What the boy felt at that moment was that he was in the presence of the only woman in his life, and that, with no need for words, she recognised the same thing. He was more certain of it than of anything in the world. He had been told by his parents and grandparents that he must fall in love and really know a person before becoming committed. But maybe people who felt that way had never learned the universal language. Because when you know that language, it's easy to understand that someone in the world awaits you, whether it's in the middle of the desert or in some great city. And when two such people encounter each other and their eyes meet, the past and the future become unimportant. There is only that moment and the incredible certainty that everything under the sun has been written by one hand only. It is the hand that evokes love and creates a twin soul for every person in the world. Without such love, one's dreams would have no meaning. Maktoub, thought the boy. The Englishman shook the boy. Come on, ask her. The boy stepped closer to the girl. And when she smiled, he did the same. What's your name? he asked. Fatima, the girl said, averting her eyes. That's what some women in my country are called. It's the name of the prophet's daughter, Fatima said. The invaders carried the name everywhere. The beautiful girl spoke of the invaders with pride. 
The Englishman prodded him, and the boy asked her about the man who cured people's illnesses. That's the man who knows all the secrets of the world, she said. He communicates with the genies of the desert. The genies were the spirits of good and evil, and the girl pointed to the south, indicating that it was there the strange man lived. Then she filled her vessel with water and left. The Englishman vanished too, gone to find the alchemist. And the boy sat there by the well for a long time, remembering that one day in Tarifa the Levanter had brought to him the perfume of that woman and realizing that he had loved her before he even knew she existed. He knew that his love for her would enable him to discover every treasure in the world. The next day, the boy returned to the well, hoping to see the girl. To his surprise, the Englishman was there, looking out at the desert. I waited all afternoon and evening, he said. He appeared with the first stars of evening, I told him what I was seeking, and he asked me if I had ever transformed lead into gold. I told him that was what I'd come here to learn. He told me I should try to do so. That's all he said. Go and try. The boy didn't say anything. The poor Englishman had travelled all this way, only to be told that he should repeat what he had already done so many times. So then try, he said to the Englishman. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start now. As the Englishman left, Fatima arrived and filled her vessel with water. I came to tell you just one thing, the boy said. I want you to be my wife. I love you. The girl dropped the container and the water spilled. I'm going to wait here for you every day. I have crossed the desert in search of a treasure that is somewhere near the pyramids. And for me, the war seemed a curse. But now it's a blessing because it brought me to you. The war is going to end some day, the girl said. The boy looked around him at the date palms. He reminded himself that he had been a shepherd and that he could be a shepherd again. Fatima was more important than his treasure. The tribesmen are always in search of treasure, the girl said, as if she had guessed what he was thinking. And the women of the desert are proud of their tribesmen. She refilled her vessel and left. The boy went to the well every day to meet with Fatima. He told her about his life as a shepherd, about the king, and about the crystal shop. They became friends. And except for the fifteen minutes he spent with her, each day seemed that it would never pass. When he had been at the oasis for about a month, the leader of the caravan called a meeting of all the people travelling with him. We don't know when the war will end, so we can't continue our journey, he said. The battles may last for a long time, perhaps even years. There are powerful forces on both sides, and the war is important to both armies. It's not a battle of good against evil, it's a war between forces that are fighting for the balance of power. And when that type of battle begins, it lasts longer than others, because Allah is on both sides. The people went back to where they were living and the boy went to meet with Fatima that afternoon. He told her about the morning's meeting. The day after we met, Fatima said, you told me that you loved me. Then you taught me something of the universal language and the soul of the world. Because of that, I have become a part of you. 
The boy listened to the sound of her voice and thought it to be more beautiful than the sound of the wind in the date palms. I have been waiting for you here at this oasis for a long time. I have forgotten about my past, about my traditions, and the way in which men of the desert expect women to behave. Ever since I was a child, I have dreamed that the desert would bring me a wonderful present. Now my present has arrived, and it's you. The boy wanted to take her hand, but Fatima's hands held to the handles of her jug. You have told me about your dreams, about the old king and your treasure, and you've told me about omens, so now I fear nothing because it was those omens that brought you to me. I am a part of your dream, a part of your personal legend, as you call it. That's why I want you to continue toward your goal. If you have to wait until the war is over, then wait. But if you have to go before then, go on in pursuit of your dream. The dunes are changed by the wind, but the desert never changes. That's the way it will be with our love for each other. Maktoub, she said. If I am really a part of your dream, you'll come back one day. The boy was sad as he left her that day. He thought of all the married shepherds he had known. They had a difficult time convincing their wives that they had to go off into distant fields. Love required them to stay with the people they loved. He told Fatima that at their next meeting. The desert takes our men from us, and they don't always return she said. We know that, and we are used to it. Those who don't return become a part of the clouds, a part of the animals that hide in the ravines, and of the water that comes from the earth. They become a part of everything. They become the soul of the world. Some do come back, and then the other women are happy because they believe that their men may one day return as well. I used to look at those women and envy them their happiness. Now I, too, will be one of the women who wait. I'm a desert woman, and I'm proud of that. I want my husband to wander as free as the wind that shapes the dunes. And if I have to, I will accept the fact that he's become a part of the clouds and the animals and the water of the desert. The boy went to look for the Englishman. He wanted to tell him about Fatima. He was surprised when he saw that the Englishman had built himself a furnace outside his tent. It was a strange furnace fueled by firewood with a transparent flask heating on the top. As the Englishman stared out at the desert, his eyes seemed brighter than they had when he was reading his books. This is the first phase of the job, he said. I have to separate out the sulphur. Now, to do that successfully, I must have no fear of failure. It was my fear of failure that first kept me from attempting the masterwork. Now I'm beginning what I could have started ten years ago, but I'm happy at least that I didn't wait twenty years. He continued to feed the fire, and the boy stayed on until the desert turned pink in the setting sun. He felt the urge to go out into the desert, to see if its silence held the answers to his questions. He wandered for a while, keeping the date palms of the oasis within sight. He listened to the wind and felt the stones beneath his feet. Here and there he found a shell and realized that the desert in remote times had been a sea. He sat on a stone and allowed himself to become hypnotized by the horizon. 
He tried to deal with the concept of love as distinct from possession and couldn't separate them. But Fatima was a woman of the desert, and if anything could help him to understand, it was the desert. As he sat there thinking, he sensed movement above him. Looking up, he saw a pair of hawks flying high in the sky. He watched the hawks as they drifted on the wind. Although their flight appeared to have no pattern, it made a certain kind of sense to the boy. It was just that he couldn't grasp what it meant. He followed the movement of the birds, trying to read something into it. Maybe these desert birds could explain to him the meaning of love without ownership. He felt sleepy. In his heart he wanted to remain awake, but he also wanted to sleep. I'm learning the language of the world, and everything in the world is beginning to make sense to me, even the flight of the hawks, he said to himself. And in that mood he was grateful to be in love. When you're in love, things make even more sense, he thought. Suddenly, one of the hawks made a flashing dive through the sky, attacking the other. As it did so, a sudden, fleeting image came to the boy, an army, with its swords at the ready, riding into the oasis. The vision vanished immediately, but it had shaken him. He had heard people speak of mirages, and he had already seen some himself. They were desires that, because of their intensity, materialised over the sounds of the desert. But he certainly didn't desire that an army invade the oasis. He wanted to forget about the vision and return to his meditation. He tried again to concentrate on the pink shades of the desert and its stones. But there was something there in his heart that wouldn't allow him to do so. Always heed the omens, the old king had said. The boy recalled what he had seen in the vision and sensed that it was actually going to occur. He rose and made his way back toward the palm trees. Once again he perceived the many languages and the things about him. This time the desert was safe and it was the oasis that had become dangerous. The camel driver was seated at the base of a palm tree observing the sunset. He saw the boy appear from the other side of the dunes. An army is coming, the boy said. I had a vision. The desert fills men's hearts with visions, the camel driver answered. But the boy told him about the hawks, that he had been watching their flight and had suddenly felt himself to have plunged to the soul of the world. The camel driver understood what the boy was saying. He knew that any given thing on the face of the earth could reveal the history of all things. One could open a book to any page or look at a person's hand. One could turn a card or watch the flight of the birds. Whatever the thing observed, one could find a connection with his experience of the moment. Actually, it wasn't that those things in themselves revealed anything at all. It was just that people, looking at what was occurring around them, could find a means of penetration to the soul of the world. The desert was full of men who earned their living based on the ease with which they could penetrate to the soul of the world. They were known as seers, and they were held in fear by women and the elderly. Tribesmen were also wary of consulting them because it would be impossible to be effective in battle if one knew that he was fated to die. The tribesmen preferred the taste of battle and the thrill of not knowing what the outcome would be. The future was already written by Allah, and what he had written was always for the good of man. So the tribesmen lived only for the present, because the present was full of surprises, 
and they had to be aware of many things. Where was the enemy's sword? Where was his horse? What kind of blow should one deliver next in order to remain alive? The camel driver was not a fighter, and he had consulted with seers. Many of them had been right about what they said, while some had been wrong. Then one day, the oldest seer he had ever sought out, and the one most to be feared, had asked why the camel driver was so interested in the future. Well, so I can do things, he had responded, and so I can change those things that I don't want to happen. But then they wouldn't be part of your future, the seer had said. Well, maybe I just want to know the future so I can prepare myself for what's coming. If good things are coming, they will be a pleasant surprise, said the seer. If bad things are, and you know in advance, you will suffer greatly before they even occur. I want to know about the future because I'm a man, the camel driver has said to the seer, and men always live their lives based on the future. The seer was a specialist in the casting of twigs. He threw them on the ground and made interpretations based on how they fell. That day, he didn't make a cast. He wrapped the twigs in a piece of cloth and put them back in his bag. I make my living forecasting the future for people, he said. I know the science of the twigs, and I know how to use them to penetrate to the place where all is written. There I can read the past, discover what has already been forgotten, and understand the omens that are here in the present. When people consult me, it's not that I'm reading the future, I am guessing at the future. The future belongs to God, and it is only He who reveals it under extraordinary circumstances. How do I guess at the future? Based on the omens of the present. The secret is here in the present. If you pay attention to the present, you can improve upon it. And if you improve on the present, what comes later will also be better. Forget about the future and live each day according to the teachings, confident that God loves his children. Each day in itself brings with it an eternity. The camel driver had asked what the circumstances were under which God would allow him to see the future. Only when he himself reveals it, and God only rarely reveals the future. When he does so, it is for only one reason. It's a future that was written so as to be altered. God had shown the boy a part of the future, the camel driver thought. Why was it that he wanted the boy to serve as his instrument? Go and speak to the tribal chieftains, said the camel driver. Tell them about the armies that are approaching. They'll laugh at me. No, they are men of the desert, and the men of the desert are used to dealing with omens. Well, then, they probably already know. They're not concerned with that right now. They believe that if they have to know about something, Allah wants them to know, someone will tell them about it. It has happened many times before, but this time the person is you. The boy thought of Fatima, and he decided he would go to see the chiefs of the tribes. The boy approached the guard at the front of the huge white tent at the center of the oasis. I want to see the chieftains. I've brought omens from the desert. Without responding, the guard entered the tent where he remained for some time. When he emerged, it was with a young Arab dressed in white and gold. 
The boy told the younger man what he had seen, and the man asked him to wait there. He disappeared into the tent. Night fell, and an assortment of fighting men and merchants entered and exited the tent. One by one the campfires were extinguished, and the oasis fell as quiet as the desert. Only the lights in the great tent remained. During all this time, the boy thought about Fatima, and he was still unable to understand his last conversation with her. Finally, after hours of waiting, the guard bade the boy enter. The boy was astonished by what he saw inside. Never could he have imagined that here, in the middle of the desert, there existed a tent like this one. The ground was covered with the most beautiful carpets he'd ever walked upon, and from the top of the structure hung lamps of hand-wrought gold, each with a lighted candle. The tribal chieftains were seated at the back of the tent in a semicircle, resting upon richly embroidered silk cushions. Servants came and went with silver trays laden with spices and tea. Other servants maintained the fires in the hookers. The atmosphere was suffused with the sweet scent of smoke. There were eight chieftains, but the boy could see immediately which one of them was the most important. An Arab dressed in white and gold, seated at the centre of the semicircle. At his side was the young Arab the boy had spoken with earlier. Who is this stranger who speaks of omens? asked one of the chieftains, eyeing the boy. It is I, the boy answered, and he told what he had seen. Why would the desert reveal such things to a stranger when it knows that we have been here for generations? said another of the chieftains. Because my eyes are not yet accustomed to the desert, the boy said. I can see things that eyes habituated to the desert might not see. And also because I know about the soul of the world, he thought to himself. The oasis is neutral ground. No one attacks an oasis, said the third chieftain. I can only tell you what I saw. If you don't want to believe me, you don't have to do anything about it. The men fell into animated discussion. They spoke in an Arab dialect the boy didn't understand, but when he made to leave, the guard told him to stay. The boy became fearful. The omens told him that something was wrong. He regretted having spoken to the camel driver about what he had seen in the desert. Suddenly, the elder at the centre smiled almost imperceptibly, and the boy felt better. The man hadn't participated in the discussion, and in fact hadn't said a word up to that point. But the boy was already used to the language of the world, and he could feel the vibrations of peace throughout the tent. Now his intuition was that he'd been right in coming. The discussion ended. The chieftains were silent for a few moments as they listened to what the old man was saying. Then he turned to the boy. This time his expression was cold and distant. Two thousand years ago, in a distant land, a man who believed in dreams was thrown into a dungeon and then sold as a slave, the old man said, now in the dialect the boy understood. Our merchants bought that man and brought him to Egypt. All of us know that whoever believes in dreams also knows how to interpret them. The elder continued. When the pharaoh dreamed of cows that were thin and cows that were fat, this man I'm speaking of rescued Egypt from famine. His name was Joseph. He too was a stranger in a strange land like you, and he was probably about your age. He paused, and his eyes were still unfriendly. 
We always observe the tradition. The tradition saved Egypt from famine in those days and made the Egyptians the wealthiest of peoples. The tradition teaches men how to cross the desert and how their children should marry. The tradition says that an oasis is neutral territory because both sides have oases and so both are vulnerable. No one said a word as the old man continued. But the tradition also says that we should believe the messages of the desert. Everything we know was taught to us by the desert. The old man gave a signal, and everyone stood. The meeting was over. The hookers were extinguished, and the guards stood at attention. The boy made ready to leave, but the old man spoke again. Tomorrow we are going to break the agreement that says no one at the oasis may carry arms. Throughout the entire day, we will be on the lookout for our enemies. When the sun sets, the men will once again surrender their arms to me. For every ten dead men among our enemies, you will receive a piece of gold. But arms cannot be drawn unless they also go into battle. Arms are as capricious as the desert, and if they are not used, the next time they might not function. If at least one of them hasn't been used by the end of the day tomorrow, one will be used on you. When the boy left the tent, the oasis was illuminated only by the light of the full moon. He was twenty minutes from his tent and began to make his way there. He was alarmed by what had happened. He had succeeded in reaching through to the soul of the world, and now the price for having done so might be his life. It was a frightening bet, but he had been making risky bets ever since the day he had sold his sheep to pursue his personal legend. As the camel driver had said, to die tomorrow was no worse than dying on any other day. Every day was there to be lived or to mark one's departure from this world. Everything depended on one word, Maktoub. Walking along in the silence, he had no regrets. If he died tomorrow, it would be because God was not willing to change the future. He would at least have died after having crossed the strait, after having worked in a crystal shop, and after having known the silence of the desert and Fatima's eyes. He had lived every one of his days intensely since he had left home so long ago. If he died tomorrow, he would already have seen more than other shepherds, and he was proud of that. Suddenly, he heard a thundering sound, and he was thrown to the ground by a wind such as he had never known. The area was swirling in dust, so intense that it hid the moon from view. Before him was an enormous white horse, rearing over him with a frightening scream. When the blinding dust had settled a bit, the boy trembled at what he saw. Astride the animal was a horseman dressed completely in black, with a falcon perched on his left shoulder. He wore a turban, and his entire face, except for his eyes, were covered with a black kerchief. He appeared to be a messenger from the desert, but his presence was much more powerful than that of a mere messenger. The strange horseman drew an enormous curved sword from a scabbard mounted on his saddle. The steel of its blade glittered in the light of the moon. Who dares to read the meaning of the flight of the hawks, he demanded, so loudly that his words seemed to echo through the fifty thousand palm trees of Al-Fayum. It is I who dare to do so, said the boy. 
he was reminded of the image of Santiago Matamoros, mounted on his white horse with the infidels beneath his hooves. This man looked exactly the same, except that now the roles were reversed. It is I who dared to do so, he repeated, and he lowered his head to receive a blow from the sword. Many lives will be saved because I was able to see through to the soul of the world. The sword didn't fall. Instead, the stranger lowered it slowly until the point touched the boy's forehead. It drew a droplet of blood. The horseman was completely immobile, as was the boy. It didn't even occur to the boy to flee. In his heart, he felt a strange sense of joy. He was about to die in pursuit of his personal legend. And for Fatima. The omens had been true after all. Here he was, face to face with his enemy. But there was no need to be concerned about dying. The soul of the world awaited him, and he would soon be a part of it. And tomorrow, his enemy would also be a part of that soul. The stranger continued to hold the sword at the boy's forehead. Why did you read The Flight of the Birds? I read only what the birds wanted to tell me. They wanted to save the oasis. Tomorrow all of you will die, because there are more men at the oasis than you have. The sword remained where it was. Who are you to change what Allah has willed? Allah created the armies, and he also created the hawks. Allah taught me the language of the birds. Everything has been written by the same hand, the boy said, remembering the camel driver's words. The stranger withdrew the sword from the boy's forehead, and the boy felt immensely relieved, but he still couldn't flee. Be careful with your prognostications, said the stranger. When something is written, there is no way to change it. All I saw was an army, said the boy. I didn't see the outcome of the battle. The stranger seemed satisfied with the answer, but he kept the sword in his hand. What is a stranger doing in a strange land? I'm following my personal legend. It's not something you would understand. The stranger placed his sword in its scabbard, and the boy relaxed. I had to test your courage, the stranger said. Courage! is the quality most essential to understanding the language of the world. The boy was surprised. The stranger was speaking of things very few people knew about. You must not let up, even after having come so far, he continued. You must love the desert, but never trust it completely. Because the desert tests all men. It challenges every step and kills those who become distracted. What he said reminded the boy of the old king. If the warriors come here, and your head is still on your shoulders at sunset, come and find me, said the stranger. The same hand that had brandished the sword now held a whip. The horse reared again, raising a cloud of dust. Where do you live? shouted the boy as the horseman rode away. The hand with the whip pointed to the south. The boy had met the alchemist. Next morning, there were 2,000 armed men scattered throughout the palm trees at Al-Fayyum. Before the sun had reached its high point, 
500 tribesmen appeared on the horizon. The mounted troops entered the oasis from the north. It appeared to be a peaceful expedition, but they all carried arms hidden in their robes. When they reached the white tent at the center of Al-Fayyum, they withdrew their scimitars and rifles, and they attacked an empty tent. The men of the oasis surrounded the horsemen from the desert, and within half an hour all but one of the intruders were dead. The children had been kept at the other side of a grove of palm trees and saw nothing of what had happened. The women had remained in their tents, praying for the safekeeping of their husbands and saw nothing of the battle either. Were it not for the bodies there on the ground, it would have appeared to be a normal day at the oasis. The only tribesman spared was the commander of the battalion. That afternoon, he was brought before the tribal chieftains who asked him why he had violated the tradition. The commander said that his men had been starving and thirsty, exhausted from many days of battle, and had decided to take the oasis so as to be able to return to the war. The tribal chieftain said that he felt sorry for the tribesmen, but that the tradition was sacred. He condemned the commander to death without honour. Rather than being killed by a blade or a bullet, he was hanged from a dead palm tree, where his body twisted in the desert wind. The tribal chieftain called for the boy and presented him with fifty pieces of gold. He repeated his story about Joseph of Egypt and asked the boy to become the counsellor of the oasis. When the sun had set and the first stars made their appearance, the boy started to walk to the south. He eventually sighted a single tent, and a group of Arabs passing by told the boy that it was a place inhabited by genies. But the boy sat down and waited. Not until the moon was high did the alchemist ride into view. He carried two dead hawks over his shoulder. I'm here, the boy said. You shouldn't be here, the alchemist answered. Or is it your personal legend that brings you here? With the wars between the tribes, it's impossible to cross the desert, so I've come here. The alchemist dismounted from his horse and signalled that the boy should enter the tent with him. It was a tent like many at the oasis. The boy looked around for the ovens and other apparatus used in alchemy, but saw none. There were only some books in a pile, a small cooking stove, and the carpets, covered with mysterious designs. Sit down. We'll have something to drink and eat these hawks, said the alchemist. The boy suspected that they were the same hawks he had seen on the day before, but he said nothing. The alchemist lighted the fire, and soon a delicious aroma filled the tent. It was better than the scent of hookers. Why did you want to see me? the boy asked. Because of the omens, the alchemist answered. The wind told me you would be coming, and that you would need help. It's not I the wind spoke about. It's the other foreigner, the Englishman. He's the one that's looking for you. He has other things to do first, but he's on the right track. He has begun to try to understand the desert. And what about me? When a person really desires something, all the universe conspires to help that person to realize his dream, said the alchemist, echoing the words of the old king. The boy understood. Another person was there to help him towards his personal legend. So, are you going to instruct me? No, 
You already know all you need to know. I am only going to point you in the direction of your treasure. But there's a tribal war, the boy reiterated. I know what's happening in the desert. I've already found my treasure. I have a camel, I have my money from the crystal shop, and I have fifty gold pieces. In my own country, I'd be a rich man. But none of that is from the pyramids, said the alchemist. I also have Fatima. She's a treasure greater than anything else I've won. She wasn't found at the pyramids either. They ate in silence. The alchemist opened a bottle and poured a red liquid into the boy's cup. It was the most delicious wine he had ever tasted. Isn't wine prohibited here? the boy asked. It's not what enters men's mouths that's evil, said the alchemist. It's what comes out of their mouths that is. The alchemist was a bit daunting, but as the boy drank the wine, he relaxed. After they finished eating, they sat outside the tent, under a moon so brilliant that it made the stars pale. Drink and enjoy yourself, said the alchemist, noticing that the boy was feeling happier. Rest well tonight, as if you were a warrior preparing for combat. Remember that wherever your heart is, there you will find your treasure. You've got to find the treasure so that everything you have learned along the way can make sense. Tomorrow, sell your camel and buy a horse. Camels are treacherous. They walk thousands of paces and never seem to tire. Then suddenly they kneel and die. But horses tire bit by bit. You always know how much you can ask of them and when it is that they are about to die. The following night, the boy appeared at the alchemist's tent with a horse. The alchemist was ready, and he mounted his own steed and placed the falcon on his left shoulder. He said to the boy, Show me where there is life out in the desert. Only those who can see such signs of life are able to find treasure. They began to ride out over the sands, with the moon lighting their way. I don't know if I'll be able to find life in the desert, the boy thought. I don't know the desert that well yet. He wanted to say so to the alchemist, but he was afraid of the man. They reached the rocky place where the boy had seen the hawks in the sky, but now there was only silence and the wind. I don't know how to find life in the desert, the boy said. I know that there's life here, but I don't know where to look. Life attracts life, the alchemist answered. And then the boy understood. He loosened the reins on his horse, who galloped forward over the rocks and sand. The alchemist followed as the boy's horse ran for almost half an hour. They could no longer see the palms of the oasis, only the gigantic moon above them and its silver reflections from the stones of the desert. Suddenly, for no apparent reason, the boy's horse began to slow. There's life here, the boy said to the alchemist. I don't know the language of the desert, but my horse knows the language of life. They dismounted, and the alchemist said nothing. Advancing slowly, they searched among the stones. The alchemist stopped abruptly and bent to the ground. There was a hole there among the stones. The alchemist put his hand into the hole, and then his entire arm up to his shoulder. Something was moving there, and the alchemist's eyes, the boy could only see his eyes, squinted with his effort. His arm seemed to be battling with whatever was in the hole, 
Then, with a motion that startled the boy, he withdrew his arm and leapt to his feet. In his hand, he grasped a snake by the tail. The boy leapt as well, but away from the alchemist. The snake fought frantically, making hissing sounds that shattered the silence of the desert. It was a cobra whose venom could kill a person in minutes. Watch out for his venom, the boy said. But even though the alchemist had put his hand in the hole and had surely already been bitten, his expression was calm. The alchemist is two hundred years old, the Englishman had told him. He must know how to deal with snakes in the desert. The boy watched as his companion went to his horse and withdrew a scimitar. With its blade, he drew a circle in the sand, and then he placed the snake within it. The serpent relaxed immediately. Not to worry, said the alchemist. He won't leave the circle. You found life in the desert, the omen that I needed. Why was that so important? Because the pyramids are surrounded by deserts. The boy didn't want to talk about the pyramids. His heart was heavy, and he had been melancholy since the previous night. To continue his search for the treasure meant that he had to abandon Fatima. I'm going to guide you across the desert, the alchemist said. I want to stay at the oasis, the boy answered. I've found Fatima, and as far as I'm concerned, she's worth more than treasure. Fatima is a woman of the desert, said the alchemist. She knows that men have to go away in order to return, and she already has her treasure. It's you. Now she expects that you will find what it is you're looking for. Well, what if I decide to stay? Let me tell you what will happen. You'll be the counsellor of the oasis. You have enough gold to buy many sheep and many camels. You'll marry Fatima and you'll both be happy for a year. You'll learn to love the desert, and you'll get to know every one of the 50,000 palms. You'll watch them as they grow, demonstrating how the world is always changing, and you'll get better and better at understanding omens, because the desert is the best teacher there is. Sometime during the second year, you'll remember about the treasure. The omens will begin insistently to speak of it, and you'll try to ignore them. You'll use your knowledge for the welfare of the oasis and its inhabitants. The tribal chieftains will appreciate what you do, and your camels will bring you wealth and power. During the third year, the omens will continue to speak of your treasure and your personal legend. You'll walk around night after night at the oasis, and Fatima will be unhappy because she'll feel it was she who interrupted your quest. But you will love her, and she'll return your love. You'll remember that she never asked you to stay, because a woman of the desert knows that she must await her man. So you won't blame her. But many times you'll walk the sands of the desert thinking that maybe you could have left, that you could have trusted more in your love for Fatima. "'because what kept you at the oasis was your own fear "'that you might never come back. "'At that point, the omens will tell you "'that your treasure is buried forever. "'Then, sometime during the fourth year, "'the omens will abandon you "'because you stopped listening to them. "'The tribal chieftains will see that, "'and you'll be dismissed from your position as counsellor. But by then you'll be a rich merchant, with many camels and a great deal of merchandise. 
You'll spend the rest of your days knowing that you didn't pursue your personal legend, and that now it's too late. You must understand that love never keeps a man from pursuing his personal legend. If he abandons that pursuit, it's because it wasn't true love, the love that speaks the language of the world. The alchemist raised the circle in the sand, and the snake slithered away among the rocks. The boy remembered the crystal merchant who had always wanted to go to Mecca, and the Englishman in search of the alchemist. He thought of the woman who had trusted in the desert, and he looked out over the desert that had brought him to the woman he loved. They mounted their horses, and this time it was the boy who followed the alchemist back to the oasis. The wind brought the sounds of the oasis to them, and the boy tried to hear Fatima's voice. But that night, as he had watched the cobra within the circle, the strange horseman with the falcon on his shoulder had spoken of love and treasure, of the women of the desert, and of his personal legend. I'm going with you, the boy said, and he immediately felt peace in his heart. We'll leave tomorrow before sunrise was the alchemist's only response. The boy spent a sleepless night. Two hours before dawn, he awoke one of the boys who slept in his tent and asked him to show him where Fatima lived. They went to her tent, and the boy gave his friend enough gold to buy a sheep. Then he asked his friend to go into the tent where Fatima was sleeping and to awaken her and tell her that he was waiting outside. The young Arab did as he was asked, and was given enough gold to buy yet another sheep. Now leave us alone, said the boy to the young Arab. The Arab returned to his tent to sleep, proud to have helped the counsellor of the oasis, and happy at having enough money to buy himself some sheep. Fatima appeared at the entrance to the tent. The two walked out among the palms. The boy knew it was a violation of the tradition, but that didn't matter to him now. I'm going away, he said and I want you to know that I'm coming back. I love you because don't say anything, Fatima interrupted. One is loved because one is loved. No reason is needed for loving. But the boy continued, I had a dream and I met with a king. I sold crystal and crossed the desert. And because the tribes declared war, I went to the well seeking the alchemist. So... I love you because the entire universe conspired to help me find you. The two embraced. It was the first time either had touched the other. I'll be back, the boy said. Before this, I always looked to the desert with longing, said Fatima. Now it will be with hope. My father went away one day, but he returned to my mother, and he has always come back since then. They said nothing else. They walked a bit further among the palms, and then the boy left her at the entrance to her tent. I'll return, just as your father came back to your mother, he said. He saw that Fatima's eyes were filled with tears. You're crying. I'm a woman of the desert, she said, averting her face. But above all, I'm a woman. Fatima went back to her tent. And when daylight came, she went out to do the chores she had done for years. But everything had changed.
the boy, was no longer at the oasis, and the oasis would never again have the same meaning it had had only yesterday. It would no longer be a place with 50,000 palm trees and 300 wells where the pilgrims arrived, relieved at the end of their long journeys. From that day on, the oasis would be an empty place for her. From that day on, it was the desert that would be important. She would look to it every day and would try to guess which star the boy was following in search of his treasure. She would have to send her kisses on the wind, hoping that the wind would touch the boy's face and would tell him that she was alive, that she was waiting for him, a woman awaiting a courageous man in search of his treasure. From that day on, the desert would represent only one thing to her, the hope for his return. Don't think about what you've left behind, the alchemist said to the boy as they began to ride across the sands of the desert. Everything is written in the soul of the world, and there it will stay forever. Men dream more about coming home than about leaving, the boy said. He was already reaccustomed to the desert silence. If what one finds is made of pure matter, it will never spoil, and one can always come back. If what you had found was only a moment of light, like the explosion of a star, you would find nothing on your return. The man was speaking the language of alchemy, but the boy knew he was referring to Fatima. It was difficult not to think about what he had left behind. The desert with its endless monotony put him to dreaming. The boy could still see the palm trees, the wells, and the face of the woman he loved. He could see the Englishman at his experiments and the camel driver, who was a teacher without realising it. Maybe the alchemist has never been in love, the boy thought. The alchemist rode in front with the falcon on his shoulder. The bird knew the language of the desert well, and whenever they stopped he flew off in search of game. On the first day he returned with a rabbit, and on the second with two birds. At night they spread their sleeping gear and kept their fires hidden. The desert nights were cold and were becoming darker and darker as the phases of the moon passed. They went on for a week, speaking only of the precautions they needed to follow in order to avoid the battles between the tribes. The war continued, and at times the wind carried the sweet, sickly smell of blood. Battles had been fought nearby, and the wind reminded the boy that there was the language of omens always ready to show him what his eyes had failed to observe. On the seventh day, the alchemist decided to make camp earlier than usual. The falcon flew off to find game, and the alchemist offered his water container to the boy. You are almost at the end of your journey, said the alchemist. I congratulate you for having pursued your personal legend. And you've told me nothing along the way, said the boy. I thought you were going to teach me some of the things you know. A while ago, I rode through the desert with a man who had books on alchemy, but I wasn't able to learn anything from them. There is only one way to learn, the alchemist answered. It's through action. Everything you need to know, you have learned through your journey. You need to learn only one thing more. The boy wanted to know what that was, but the alchemist was searching the horizon, looking for the falcon. Why are you called the alchemist? Because that's what I am. 
And what went wrong when other alchemists tried to make gold and were unable to do so? They were looking only for gold, his companion answered. They were seeking the treasure of their personal legend without wanting actually to live out the personal legend. What is it that I still need to know? the boy asked. But the alchemist continued to look to the horizon, and finally the falcon returned with their meal. They dug a hole and lit their fire in it so that the light of the flames would not be seen. I'm an alchemist simply because I'm an alchemist, he said as he prepared the meal. I learned the science from my grandfather, who learned it from his father, and so on, back to the creation of the world. In those times, the master work could be written simply on an emerald. But men began to reject simple things and to write tracts, interpretations, and philosophical studies. They also began to feel that they knew a better way than others had. Yet the emerald tablet is still alive today. What was written on the emerald tablet, the boy wanted to know. The alchemist began to draw in the sand and completed his drawing in less than five minutes. As he drew, the boy thought of the old king and the plaza where they had met that day. It seemed as if it had taken place years and years ago. This is what was written on the emerald tablet, said the alchemist when he had finished. The boy tried to read what was written in the sand. It's a code, said the boy, a bit disappointed. It looks like what I saw in the Englishman's books. No, the alchemist answered. It's like the flight of those two hawks. It can't be understood by reason alone. The emerald tablet is a direct passage to the soul of the world. The wise men understood that this natural world is only an image and a copy of paradise. The existence of this world is simply a guarantee that there exists a world that is perfect. God created the world so that through its visible objects men could understand his spiritual teachings and the marvels of his wisdom. That's what I mean by action. Should I understand the emerald tablet, the boy asked? Perhaps. If you were in a laboratory of alchemy, this would be the right time to study the best way to understand the emerald tablet. But you are in the desert, so immerse yourself in it. The desert will give you an understanding of the world. In fact, anything on the face of the earth will do that. You don't even have to understand the desert. All you have to do is contemplate a simple grain of sand, and you will see in it all the marvels of creation. How do I immerse myself in the desert? Listen to your heart. It knows all things because it came from the soul of the world, and it will one day return there.